Good afternoon and welcome to the 83rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I'm excited to have the second of my discussions about racial justice and disaster research with Bill Anderson Fund Fellows. My guests today are Nancy Contreras and Antoine Richards. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. And I'd like to extend a welcome to new viewers and listeners, of which we have some this week. Really glad you could join us. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. If you're wondering what COVID Calls is all about, be sure to check out our introductory episode on Podbean. It's linked also on the Facebook page. It tells you a little bit about what the goals are for COVID Calls. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and for future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I'd also like to give a special shout out to all of my colleagues who are participating this week in the 45th Natural Hazards Workshop. Be sure to check out what they're doing. You can follow along um, on the Hazards website, Natural Hazards Center, or you can follow on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag H-A-Z-W-S, HazWS. As of today, July 15th, 2020, there are 13,382,020 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 13,177,855 yesterday. Of those, 3,448,625 are in the United States. That's up from 3,397,069 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 136,699 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 136,117 reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day. I'd like to continue that now with a story that was written by Kazra Zarai and appeared in today's Philadelphia Inquirer. And the headline is, For Every COVID-19 Death, Nine Relatives Suffer, Penn State Researchers Say. The coronavirus has so far caused more than 500,000 deaths, with more than 136,000 of them in the United States. But the impact doesn't end there. While it's expected that deaths from COVID-19 will impair the health and well-being of surviving family members, the extent of the impact hasn't been quantified. Now researchers at Pennsylvania State University have calculated that each death from COVID-19 will affect approximately nine surviving family members. It's not just individuals themselves who die. People are connected to other people, said Ashton Verdery, professor of sociology, demography, and social data analytics at Penn State and lead author of the study. We have a general sense that the pandemic has had a lot of effects on families compared to during periods of normal, compared to during normal periods of mortality. But there hasn't been an estimate into how large the effect might be and the potential psychological impact. 
Verdery and his colleagues analyzed kinship networks, the system of relationships that make up an extended family, to determine the number of people who experience a death of a close relative due to COVID-19. Our goal was to understand for each death, what are the downstream implications, Verdery said. Think about the number as a multiplier. Instead of making a prediction of how many people will die, it represents how many people will be bereaved. The COVID-19 bereavement multiplier is a national estimate and defines kin as grandparents, parents, siblings, spouses, and children. While the multiplier was about equal for black and white Americans, this does not mean that the impacts of COVID-19 deaths will be the same. In Philadelphia, for instance, there are higher numbers of COVID-19 deaths among black residents, meaning that more black Americans will be bereaved. There is also a concern that the large burden of family bereavement may lead to a related wave of health challenges. Family members often rely on each other for social and emotional support, and many studies have shown that experiencing the death of a loved one or relative places an individual at greater risk for negative life stressors, worsened health, and relationship strain. Additionally, unexpected deaths are more traumatic for individuals compared to those that are expected. Local hospital chaplains say the effect of COVID-19 deaths may be even higher due to the unusual intimate role healthcare workers and hospital personnel played in the pandemic. With COVID-19, we had to do some stuff around the time of death that we never had to before, said Jim Browning, chaplain and pastoral care director at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Families were not allowed in the room and we had to become surrogate family members. In many instances, he's counted at least nine people in the hospital affected by a COVID-19 patient's death, including nurses who stood with patients as they took their last breath, and intensive care unit secretaries who called the families to tell them that it was time to say goodbye to loved ones on FaceTime. Just donning the PPE equipment and having to wear it and not be able to see in the face of their patients was hard for people, said Claudia Smith, chaplain at the university, the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. That ability to connect eye to eye was a loss. The grief may take years to resolve, some say. I've never seen us so complicated in our grief and loss, Browning said. There are scars that are very deep that we're not acknowledging yet, but he sees a bright spot. Whenever a COVID-19 patient is released, the hospital plays Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. It's been played 600 times, and it never gets old. We live for those moments of hope, Browning said. We are not declaring victory. We are expressing hope. In hope, we're going to be together with each other. I'd like to turn to our conversation for today. I'm really thrilled to introduce my guests. Nancy Contreras is a PhD candidate in criminology at the University of Delaware. She's a Bill Anderson Fund Fellow and an affiliate of the Disaster Research Center. Her dissertation explores international transit migration using legal violence, social vulnerability, and resilience. Nancy also investigates race-based culture-specific programming social movement organizing, and perceived police community relations. Her previous practitioner experience covers safe haven homelessness, the juvenile justice system, and behavioral health. Nancy's current research interests include forced migration, borders, and social disasters. My second guest is Antoine Richards. He's a doctor of science student in emergency management at Jacksonville State University. Currently, he's a Bill Anderson Fund Fellow Senior Advisor for the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Management, IDIEM, 
Director of Research for Peacebuilding Solutions, a 501c3 nonprofit organization focusing on humanitarian assistance for forcibly displaced populations. He has also received his Master's of Public Health from the Morehouse School of Medicine. His current research interests include social vulnerability, community resilience, and policy. Wow, these are two busy young scholars. Uh, Nancy and Antoine, thank, thank you so much for your time today. Welcome to COVID Calls. Thank, thank you. you for having us. I'd like to remind people you can get your questions in throughout our discussion today. You can put them into the YouTube live chat. You can also email them to me directly at sgk23 at drexel.edu. Sometimes people like to do that. Or you can just put them up on Twitter and be sure to tag at US of Disaster. And I know we have a lot of people from the hazards meeting uh, watching today. So let's jump right into the conversation. I'd like to start with a question I've been asking everyone, and that's just to find out what's going on where you are. So if you could tell us where you're calling in from, what the COVID-19 situation is there. Nancy, can I start with you, please? Uh, sure. I'm calling in from Newark, Delaware, also in the state of Delaware. Uh, currently, the governor reported that we have over 12,000 cases of that have tested positive for COVID and about 500 deaths in the state. Uh, it, the sentiment currently is that we're doing well uh, because we are at 3.8% positive. So that is under the 5% positive test rate recommended by the World Health Organization. Um, and an interesting dialogue happening in the last press briefing for the governor was that two specific situations are being cited as be having peaks of COVID testing test for positives. The first is the chicken poultry uh, or process, which in terms means uh, that in Southern Delaware, there's a lot of uh, processing for poultry in these farms where a lot of migrant workers are working. And so there was a um, situation where uh, there wasn't the right precautions at the right time or preventative measures, which ended up leading into a spike. And more recently, the dialogue has changed to include uh, the beach crowd, the bar crowd, the young crowd, and the dialogue and the narrative is really different from how we talk about the spike concerning migrant workers and these poultry farms to now how we have these young college students going to the beaches and bars and spreading COVID in that sense. So that is something that I noticed in the current uh, dialogue right now. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for situating us with that. Is the governor of Delaware doing daily briefings? Uh, so not daily, but there was one two days ago. Okay. 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 But on a regular, on a regular basis, yeah, those, we were, I was just thinking we were all hanging on those briefings, um, from New York and other States that were coming so regularly. And now they're kind of becoming a little bit less regular, which I can only take mm -hmm. to be a good sign in States where that's possible. Antoine, let me get the same sense from you. Where, where are you and what's the situation there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first and foremost, thanks for having us on this episode of um, COVID Calls. I'm really excited about this. So looking forward to the discussion. I am uh, currently calling in from Tampa, Florida, and I'm a native Atlantan. So I'm from um, Atlanta, Georgia, and I moved down here last year. So I call Florida and Georgia home, and I also call them toxic twins. And the reason I do that is because they've kind of been the poster child of what not to do during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Florida, as you know, has kind of quickly emerged as the epicenter for the COVID-19 pandemic, mainly Miami um, in the United States. And they're, they're considering, um, I think this week, Disney is opening back up. They're talking about reopening schools. There were comments made that 
well, if you can go to uh, Walmart and Home Depot, then your kids can go to school. So, I mean, there's just a lot of things going on in Florida. And Georgia has kind of been also the poster child for crazy political behavior. Um, really the dissonance between the mayor of Atlanta and then, of course, the governor of Georgia. And both states, in my opinion, have just done really good um, job of showing unexemplary leadership. So that's kind of the COVID situation where I'm at. I'm used to, to seeing that in, in Georgia, where there's this discord, this sort of normal between the mayor of Atlanta and the governor of the state. Yeah, it's, um, it's not uncommon. So Georgia, in general, is, a, is predominantly a red state. And um, within Georgia, you have two really blue areas. One is Atlanta, which is, um, which is um, you know, extremely liberal. And then parts of Savannah, is, it's a lighter blue, but typically the rest of the state. So the governor and the mayor of Atlanta typically have a lot of business there. Antoine, let me stay with you and, and find out what's been going on in terms of social protest in reaction to the George Floyd murder where you've been. So in Tampa, a lot of the, um, the the social protests and social justice issues have calmed down. Um, in Atlanta, since tend to go back and forth. They're still kind of ongoing, but at smaller capacities. Um, and this is to be expected, in my opinion. Um, it's one of the most pivotal, pivotal and impactful moments for social change, though, because now we get to look at the intersection of policy. Where do these actions, now that the protests um, are calming down, become policy? So I'm seeing that there's a lot of conversations on the on the political front and the push for voting and things like that. And you're seeing some rallies and some social justice issues around um, voting, voting discrimination, but not as much as before in the wake of the death. But I am interested in seeing how policy and practice changes moving forward, because those have really been instrumental to what's been oppressive for a lot of people. Nancy, anything that you can report to us from from Newark in that in that sense about social protests since George Floyd's murder? Yes, so not necessarily Newark, but more of the Wilmington area. Uh, so a, another of urban city close to the northern part of Delaware, which is only about thirty, well less, maybe fifteen minutes away from Newark. Um, and what is happening is we had a very uh, there was a rise in the protests after the George Floyd murder, um, and then it almost dissipated a little bit, but this current weekend was a very violent weekend for Wilmington. There were seven people shot out of out of those seven people. Six ended up being teenagers, one as young as 10 years old. And you're talking about a city of a little bit more of 70,000 people. So what, what the result of this violent weekend is this upcoming weekend, there are Black Lives Matter protests planned, which actually speaks to this idea of police abolition and the idea that the community is denouncing this crime. So they're denouncing the shootings and the violent crime that is happening in the area that is impacting teenagers. Uh, and so what we're seeing is the community coming out. Uh, the plan is for this weekend, this upcoming weekend, um, to denounce the, the shootings and speak to the need of um, having safer communities. Mm. And in Wilmington, uh, the idea is that these events of violence that are happening in terms of the shootings are connected to larger historical uh, references because Wilmington, Delaware in particular, after the assassination of MLK in 1968, there was the riots and the, and the protests happening. And mm -hmm. Wilmington, Delaware actually has the longest occupation in the United States of the National Guard in the city after the um, Civil War. So it has a, it, and the, I guess the time of that occupation was nine months. The National Guard 
was activated in Wilmington, Delaware for nine months. And that was about 3,500 uh, military officials navigating the space um, and terrorizing the black community in Wilmington. So these current events of violence and the protests addressing police use of force are all connected and referenced back to those events after um, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. That's so compelling the way you put that together for us and um, very economically told so that we can actually understand what happened with George Floyd, but then how we see violence now in that context. And then to also always keep in mind that for every one of these cities, there's a deeper, sometimes overlapping layers of stories of, of protest and social justice concerns. When President Trump was giving his uh, Tulsa thing, um, you know, we had the opportunity to talk there about the Tulsa massacre. And I've, I've thought about that a lot, that it wasn't something maybe people had expected to talk about this year. The anniversary is next year. Um, but it was an unexpected bright spot of that Trump rally that we had the opportunity to have that conversation and to see that that deep history was still very lively in terms of the way people were understanding what had happened with George Floyd. These are some of the things we're going to be talking about today, I think. Um, history, um, the inheritances of history and mistrust and the possibility for new trust and new ways to build community too. I want to first, if I can, get a little bit of a sense, a bit more from each of you, um, why you're doing this work. How did you find your way into disaster science and emergency management study? It's one of the things that's always exciting to me when I meet researchers because there's, there's so many ways into this field. It's not just one path. Nancy, could you tell us a little bit about your way into this work? Yeah, so I'm actually originally from Southern California. Um, I am currently in Delaware doing my PhD program, but in Southern California, I ended up growing up with school fire days uh, because of the wildfires that we have. Uh, so, And this was pretty normal growing up. Um, and then I also ended up working after my undergrad education in a juvenile justice facility. And there was a really touching moment because in addition to wildfires in California, we have earthquakes. And so working inside a juvenile justice facility, I remember um, minors, well, we always hear the stories of the big one is coming. So this big earthquake that is supposed to be ha happening because of the San Andreas Fault. And so minors inside the facility that were under detention or commitment um, ended up asking me, uh, um, would anybody care that they were locked in there during an earthquake? and what would happen to them. And that really opened my eyes into thinking more about uh, disasters and the impact and the relationship with the criminal justice system. And in terms of my research, um, I ended up going to Cuba after the um, Hurricane Irma uh, and ended up seeing some of the destruction and the recovery there. Um, and soon after that, I ended up meeting uh, the great Norma Anderson who ended up bringing me in into becoming a BAF fellow. Okay, thank you for that background. What an extraordinary story. Um, would you say a little bit more about what School Fire Day is? Is this a uniquely uh, Southern California kind of thing? I'm not sure if it's unique, but because of the concerns with smoke inhalation, so if there is a wildfire nearby, uh, 
pretty much school would be canceled. So it was great. Kids loved it. Um, you would get to be home kind of like a snow day. If there is extreme snow and, and wind and hail, uh, then kids don't go to school that day. So that, that is kind of what the school fire day was. Um, they were looking at uh, the, the impact uh, for children being out on those days um, in school. And so usually they would cancel school. I see. Wow. Antoine, same question to you. How do you find yourself in this world of disaster research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I got my master's in public health from Morehouse School of Medicine um, in Atlanta. And my background has always been primarily healthcare. I was an x-ray tech for about seven years prior to um, starting my, my educational journey, really. And um, I worked at Grady Hospital, which at the time was the only level one trauma center in the heart of Atlanta. So for me, I've always had this passion for fast-paced, kind of chaotic settings like emergency and trauma. Um, and that eventually led to me serving on the initial board of advisors for the Georgia Trauma Foundation after getting my master's and volunteering with the American Red Cross um, and also serving with my local medical reserve corps. Um, so in my last year at Morehouse, honestly, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. And I typically go against the grain. So most of my peers were either going into the workforce or they were going to medical school since we got our master's from a medical school or they were heading to doctor or public health programs. And um, I really wasn't interested in any of those routes. So in my last semester while working on my thesis, I figured I would take what I thought was an easy A course, which was um, an online class in public health preparedness. The thing that I didn't expect was to fall in love with the content completely. So I began to spend time even away from school like researching public health preparedness, public health and disasters. And what I noticed mm. was that there were so many opportunities that emergency management could benefit from public health and that public health could benefit from emergency management. And we're seeing that right now in COVID-19. So um, after that, I immediately applied for the first doctoral program that I could find in emergency, um, in emergency management, which was totally against the recommendations of any of my advisors, given my background. And the rest has been a fun ride since. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for those two different but compelling stories about how you find yourself in, in doing this kind of work. And I, I guess, Antoine, I'm going to stay with you. Could you tell us a little bit about, for listeners who may be tuning in for the first time today, about Bill Anderson and the Bill Anderson Fund and what it means to you to be a Bill Anderson Fund fellow? Yeah. So a little bit different from Nancy, I actually went to the FEMA Higher Education Symposium and um, we were sitting in the lunchroom and um, one of the colleagues there spoke to me about the Bill Anderson Fund and, and told me I should really look into it. So I reached out to Norma Anderson um, and we had about an hour conversation. And that's what really brought me into the fold. And since then, um, BAF has really been two things for me in particular. The first thing is something that I needed. And the second is something that I never quite knew I needed or never expected to have needed. And what I what I really mean by that is that um, I knew that professionally, especially since I didn't have much emergency management experience, that I needed to have a, a, a solid network. And BAF has provided that through workshops and webinars and, and mentorships and opportunities that have expanded that. But on the other hand, BAF has really given me a support and an encouragement and a family that um, I never really knew I needed or I wasn't expecting from that. And it's become a really big inspiration for me. Um, Mainly, they encourage me to kind of come out of my shell. I prefer to work in the backgrounds. I love to write. Um, I don't necessarily like to be on the, on the forefront of things, but I've gotten some gentle nudges from fellows and, 
and from Norma. I've gotten a couple of calls and they're the sweetest calls, but it's always like, hey, you should really present this or do this. And that's even with me sometimes saying, mm. oh, I don't necessarily feel that I'm contributing much, but they're saying, no, what you are contributing is worthwhile. Um, and the other thing that I absolutely love about this is just that I'm surrounded by so many different beautiful shades of like passionate and educated and outspoken and hardworking scholars of color that really inspire me to do a lot of work. Mm. Um, there's times when we go to conferences like the Natural Hazards Workshop and, and we sit down as BAF fellows, all 37 of us at a restaurant. And to look down that table and see 37, you know, people of color that are all working on their doctoral degrees, that's a powerful thing. Because in a lot of our personal spaces, and especially in society, we get discouraged by the lack of diversity and inclusion around us that contributes to the struggles that we face. I, I can attest for a lot of us that in a lot of ways on these local task force or these committees, we might be the only person of color or one of few. So it's really good to see that. Um, you know, among different disciplines and the fact that we're all working to improve outcomes for people that look like us and talk like us and essentially are us. And uh, to be able to provide an, a firsthand experience of what it's like to be us to help improve vulnerability and resilience down the line. So that in itself is kind of incomparable and valuable to me as a BAF fellow. A powerful description of that network and that community. Nancy, kind of like to know the same thing from you, what it's meant for you to be a, a Bill Anderson Fund fellow. Yes, I mean, I think the Bill Anderson Fund has really developed this community, and I completely agree with everything that Anton has said um, in terms of the meaning and, and the community building. And uh, a lot of the times I think uh, you can be or I can be the only person of color in my department or the only person of, person of color in in a committee at the University of Delaware. Um, and so the, the community that we build as part of the BAF that allows, I think for me, most importantly, to see role models, uh, role models that look like myself that I can, uh, um, in terms of scholarship and, and in terms of uh, their character as individuals, as scholars, um, and even just by um, the interactions that, that I've developed with Norma Anderson and Monica Sanders, uh, this sense of building uh, an emotional support community as well as the academic, because a lot of the times we can get great mentorship in our in our own departments in, in an academic sense of learning how to publish sometimes or how to attend um, a conference mm -hmm. or a workshop, but the emotional connection um, is missing. And, and I think for me, that has really developed the trust that I have in the academy and the and the hope in, in the future of of developing scholars that look like myself in, in order to provide opportunities for me to also mentor future generations of scholars of color. Mm. Is that part of the way that the the Bill Anderson Fund is working too? Is that you're you're mentoring? scholars coming up as well? Are you both already engaged in that or you soon will be engaged as mentors too? Uh, I can answer. Um, yeah, Nancy. Well, yes, yes. Um, so uh, the the way that it, it is, has been working is we do get um, to work with a faculty mentor um, per se that we end up building a relationship with. Um, in terms of, I ended up coming in um, year by year almost in a co cohort model, Antoine and I came in at the same time in the same year. So essentially we get mentored by fellows at alumni BAF fellows and fellows in other 
Um, I don't think we referenced them as cohorts, but just in that came in prior to the Bell Anderson fund before us. Um, and so essentially now that uh, Antoine and I have been BAF fellows for um, a few years now, there are other fellows that are coming in or, or are being brought into the uh, fellowship that we can also talk to in, in, in that sense. And additionally, the, um, you know, the BAF fund does have professional mentor opportunities. So one of their programs is to actually match you with a professional mentor. Um, it's a it's a very guided process. They, it's almost like a protocol mm -hmm. to it, um, but it's really meant to align you with someone that's professional, that's experienced, that aligns with your research interest, and that can that can work with you throughout your process as a BAF fellow. Um, and that's been really integral to a lot of our professional growth, research growth, and just growth overall personally. It's tremendous. All right. Well, thank you for for letting us know more about that. I know people are listening who may be interested to learn more, and I'm assuming both of you are available if anybody wants to reach out and know a little bit more about the Bill Anderson Fund that can get a hold of you. So um, let me turn to some research discussion here a little bit. And let's start, Nancy, first with with you. Um, I know one of the things, you, you've been looking at borders and trans-border issues. I mean, we we are in the midst of a very complicated set of compound disasters where it's when we try to pull them apart, we sort of do damage to the complexity of the whole. And just to give a few examples, the, the problem of transporter migration, the Black Lives Matter struggle, and the pandemic, all three are intertwined in, in crucial ways. I'd like to know kind of a little bit how you approach that, how you think about the interactions among these different types of disasters and particularly ones that are, I, mean, I really like the fact that you're framing them as disasters, that th these are social disasters, but um, we have to bring the same kind of tools analysis that we would to a hurricane or some other kind of anthropogenic hazard. Can you talk to us a little bit about your thinking there? Uh, yes, and definitely that has to do, I think my perspective of coming from this background in criminology and sociology, framing of the issues that we see with police violence or, or with borders and immigration and, and now with COVID as all social disasters. Um, but I have heard commentary of how people are protesting in support of Black Lives Matter during COVID-19 without social distancing. And this rationale is functioning uh, under an order of events where the spread of COVID uh, in the U.S is seen as happening first before the murder of George Floyd. And this order of events is actually flawed because we've had racial injustice in the United States happening um, all along. And the manifestations of that injustice can be seen in different institutions and in practice. And not, not only are black men and women disproportionately murdered at the hands of police violence, but we also see black and brown communities disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. In my case, back in Southern California, we see the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Latinx communities as well. And when we look more closely at the source of the violence, we can begin to understand white privilege and white supremacy. And there has been criticism of appropriating labels such as Latinx for Black Lives or Karens for Black Lives more recently. And this is inappropriate and unhelpful. Um, and how we proceed forward, because when we insert ourselves into a movement um, such as Black Lives Matter, um, then we can't really focus on the source of the problem, which in in a sense is the racial injustice. 
um, that is understood as a core foundation of the movement itself. And the Black Lives Matter movement, I would argue, is not separate from the right to migrate in times of COVID or migration and borders and freedom of movement. Uh, there was a Black Lives Matter protest at one of the Tijuana pedestrian border crossing bridges, which is in, in the border between California and Mexico, um, to stand in solidarity with denouncing the murder of George Floyd in the United States, but also to denounce violence against Black migrants in Mexico, which holds strong anti-Black sentiments at its core um, in that country. So Mexico was also an active participant in the historical enslavement of uh, people from Africa, even though they emancipated slaves 30 years prior to the United States. And more recently, we have had um, Haitian and African migration um, happening or in transit through Mexico um, to the United States. Some Haitians migrated uh, to Brazil after the earthquake, and they migrated in these last few years, have migrated up and reached Tijuana, so the Southern California border in 2016. And the externalization of the border policies beyond the wall. So the, the border now essentially extends beyond the wall because of these policies um, have blocked black migrants um, and essentially um, entrapped them in Mexico without the possibility of reaching the United States. And we've had cases such as Maxine Andre, a Haitian black migrant that died in a Mexican detention center um, 11 months ago, and his body has still not been returned to his family. And we also have cases such as Juno Camir Jean, uh, who was also a Haitian migrant. He was beaten by Mexican municipal police um, as he screamed that he had asthma and begged for his life. So these are cases of uh, Mexican officials uh, brutalizing black bodies um, in Mexico, all in the context of migration and policies and blocked access into the United States. Um, so these cases, they, they in my um, opinion, prove that the Black Lives Matter cause in the issues on border migration and COVID-19 because black migrants are not receiving the same medical care in Mexico um, are all related and they're all essentially connected to each other and not necessarily separate causes. It's a remarkable description and um, again, showing the connections among them, but also um, to bring this back to Antoine, to, to some of your, your research and thinking about um, the challenges of doing that kind of analysis you know, even if we may know, for example, that um, African-American communities certainly are disproportionately damaged by police violence, but have also been disproportionately damaged by COVID-19. Where do you and, and so let's let, let's say good, let's bring those let, let, from an analytical point of view. It's a good move to look at those together in a compound sense. But. Isn't it hard? I mean, the research community has not traditionally been structured to think about those in combination. And emergency management itself as a as a field often doesn't do that either. Can you talk? I know this is an area that you're really interested in. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how we might see maybe even a shift in the way we think of what emergency management is in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Um so the thing is, in public health, those are things that we all consider. You know, everything that we do impacts health. Violence 
um, you know, impacts health, systemic racism, anything that contributes to a health disparity or an inequity is um, something that we consider that we research in public health. So when we look at a lot of the protests and the things that are going on, those are all public health issues. Um, and that's one of the things that I really want us to start to realize when we look at emergency management. In a lot of cases, when these um, protests and things, especially the way that they happen across the nation, became a really big issue of safety, public safety, which is what emergency management is and in part and function is a public safety issue. Then people started to say that, hey, these protests are disasters or they're catastrophes or they're getting out of hand and we need somebody to help manage this crisis. And, you know, to that regard, if you're going to consider, you know, catastrophe or crisis as an emergency management issue, then you might want to start to look at racism as a disaster because it's built on disparities and vulnerabilities. Um, and that's one of the things that we really want to start to look at when we talk about um, embracing what COVID-19 is doing right now. What we're seeing is that a lot of people are saying, oh, my God, you know, um, Communities of color are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. This is not anything new. We've always been historic, uh, disproportionately impacted by the majority of any disease as far as healthcare um, access, as far as, you know, um, social justice. There's always been a disproportionate impact there. But what's happening now is that people are actually starting to look at it and realize it because it's, in, it, it's, it's affecting them. And a lot of times we don't begin to look into things or, or you know, even pay attention to what's going on until it affects us in a certain type of way. Um, you know, my mom has, she caught COVID. My stepfather caught COVID. My brother-in-law, you know, caught COVID. A few of my friends have coronavirus. Former classmates have coronaviruses, uh, have the coronavirus. So this is something that hit home, you know, and, and the common factor among all of them is that they're black. And that, and that goes to say that, and, and this is all different age groups here, but that goes to really show the disproportionate impact that we look at when it comes to color. So when we add in civil unrest and protest against police brutality, which is also systemic, we begin to um, have to look at ways to look beyond fighting just for um, things as it stands. We want more sustainable solutions. So one of the things I always say is that we want to look past being opportunistic and look towards opportunity. And the thing about that is that there's a lot of money going around right now for social justice and, um, for research and things like that that are very opportunistic right now. It's kind of taking advantage of the, of the current social climate. And we have to look at how we're going to move beyond what that climate is to make these sustainable and actionable solutions. We have to turn these from opportunistic fads, so to speak, to opportunities for improved future. So when that, with that being said, disparities are really an underlying thing there that we have to look at. When it comes to COVID, people of color are dying at a rate five times higher than whites. Mm -hmm. Testing deserts exist in um, low-income communities. Public transportation has decreased routes in response to COVID-19, which increases the amount of people on one particular route trying to get to work. And minorities are more likely to be in service-related fields, which means that they're more, more or less essential workers. And they're more or, uh, more or less likely, or more likely, excuse me, to be the people that are forced to ride on these overcrowded buses to work during a global during a global pandemic, which means that they're also well, how do I want to put this? They're more likely to be those people that are riding on these overcrowded buses during a global pandemic that are five times more likely to die from COVID. And if you add in the health insurance and the lack of access to testing within their communities, this becomes a cascading issue. And we talk about cascading disasters a lot. 
And that's exactly what it is when you add in health disparities, especially when you look at a lot of the leading causes of death, like cancer, heart disease, diabetes. Low income people of color typically lead death in those areas, which, again, are more vulnerable to this. And the thing I really want to point out with this before I go on this full tangent about it um, is that with the way the economy is looking right now, the unemployment, we're going to see a rise of a new set of vulnerable people. And for those that are already vulnerable, the coronavirus is going to exacerbate that. So we have to have an actionable plan that really accepts that disparities exist and um, accepts why they exist. And when we do that, we need to really start to look at equity in our policies. Um, really quick, one of the things I really loved about public health was a program they had called Health in All Policies, which brought in a public health expert to look at um, policies from pu um, public policies, public administration, and urban planning. So if they said, hey, we want to ride in this road, then a public health professional would say, well, if you do that, there's a high lung cancer burden in this area. We don't think this is a favorable, favorable place to widen the road. So they begin to look at equity in their policies. And I think that emergency management needs to do that. Um, and for a lot of people that don't understand what equity and equality is, IDM CEO Chauncey Willis, who I work with, and I love when she used this, this quote in particular, is that equality ensures that everybody gets a shoe, but equity ensures that everybody gets a shoe that fits. So as we move forward, we need to look at, you know, policies that are equitable and that look for long-term and long-withstanding solutions and not just takes advantage of an opportunity right now because it does a disservice to the people that we serve or that we're supposed to protect in emergency management. What a powerful set of ideas. And it, it, in some ways, to me, it's the, it's the true culmination of a revolution in thinking that's been going on in disaster research now for a generation that stopped seeing disaster as some sort of external thing that happens to a community, but that really you start with the, the fractures within the community. And the, the, sometimes the term vulnerabilities has been used, but that sometimes places it on the individual rather than looking at the systemic vulnerabilities and the manufacture of those vulnerabilities. You're both describing like, I guess I'm still hung up on that set of changes. Neither of you seem hung up on it at all. It's like, no, this is the research. This is where we're going with it. Um, this is the direction. The way you both stated that racism is a disaster. Um, I had Peter Chin Hong on, a doctor who's at the University of California, San Francisco, and he was one of the more outspoken public health leaders about um, supporting protesters and, and not discouraging them from going out and protesting after George Floyd was murdered. And he just said flat out, he said, um, racism is a public health disaster. You just have to state it flatly as what it, as what it is. Nancy, let me ask you this question sort of connected to all of that and has to do with Antoine's observation about the Bill Anderson Fund fellows at the table. And the table's a good metaphor here. How do you, how are you thinking about changing who's at the table? Not just at the research conference, but also in the emergency operations center, in the state house, in the various offices that need to be made diverse and anti-racist, how are you thinking about that? What are the steps? Uh, I think, first of all, we need to open up funded opportunities for scholars of color. So we are often invited okay. uh, to participate in a lot of committees or efforts um, addressing diversity or uh, the lack of diversity in organizations. Um, but the idea is that as scholars of color, we are um, 
essentially uh, given credibility. So we should be compensated in terms of the emotional labor on top of the um, labor and getting the job done. So providing access to funded opportunities, but then also in terms of research, um, I would argue that we also need to have the data collection process uh, to be respected in terms of the diversity work and community service work, because often it's, or the community-based research can often be seen as service and not valued in the mm. same way um, as more mm. major empirical um I think it, it brings into question what is empirical work and the, having the work of scholars of color being respected. I know I often see the work of scholars of color and their research and their ideas published in forms of, of books and not so much as journal publications. So even in, in the avenues of where everybody's publishing and what work is given credibility, um, I think that it, that would be a good start. Antoine, I want to ask you the same question. I know you've been thinking about um, funding models and putting funding also in the hands of community members and practitioners. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you think is possible in that regard? Yeah, I think um, the one thing we have to learn to do is we have to move beyond barriers as excuses and move towards barriers as solutions. Um, we focus a lot on barriers um, as reasons why we can't do the things that we know that we should be doing or that we know needs to be done. And that's problematic. You know, um, we can hear nine to 10 reasons, you know, or we, you know, nine to 10 reasons about why something can't be done, but there's always at least one reason why something can be done. And we have to get beyond focusing on that. So when it comes to diversifying researchers or, you know, the community of researchers, we have to be intentional, innovative, strategic, and equitable in how we go about doing it. One of the areas where I see a biggest you know, concern is that we're not representative even of the populations that we're seeking to serve. There's 100 people in that population and 40 of them are black, 30 are white, um, 10 are you know, American Indian and Alaskan Native and 20 are Hispanic slash Latinx. Then we need to have four blacks, three white, you know, one American Indian slash uh, Alaskan Native and two Hispanic slash Latinx there. We need to be representative of the population. And we don't see that a lot, especially when we look at leadership or when we look at the boards of a lot of these companies that are issuing these statements now, they're not representative of the population that they're serving. They're not representative of the United States population. Mm -hmm. So we need to start focusing on that um, equity and, rep and um, representation for one. And then also one of the things I really want to look at is focusing on a transitional pipeline. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times we look at what exists as it is and we're not looking at, you know, the future. In a sense, we're looking at the response right now of COVID-19, but we haven't, we're not looking at the recovery or, what, or how we're going to recover from it, if we want to put it in context of what we're looking at now. So we need more of a transitional pipeline that supports young um, scholars of color, young professionals of color that are coming up through these programs. I mean, I, you know, I remember as a kid, a lot of times people were saying, oh, you know, you could be a doctor or a lawyer or the first black president, which Obama ruined for me. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where they always put these STEM programs in place and, and things like that to guide us in the medical sciences. But, you know, I remember doing science projects with two liter bottles and we turn them around to make tornadoes or the volcano with the baking soda and vinegar or, you know, the toothpick projects where you build a bridge and see whose bridge can withstand the most pressure. And we never stop and say this could be emergency management. You could be a disaster scientist, mm. you know, so there's no transitional pipeline there, especially for communities of color. 
And this is where you start to make funding fun. You look at opportunities to embrace that. I, you know, sometimes I think about if we had a drone class in an underprivileged community and we say, you know what, we're going to take philanthropic funding or um, grant funding and we're going to invest in the equipment and we're going to teach high school students how to fly drones. And in the process mm -hmm. of that, we're going to teach them how to do risk analysis. We're going to look at the rules of housing, uh, the rules of houses and things like that. What you're doing now is you're giving them an opportunity to not only make money, especially in the state of Florida where hurricanes you know, and wind damage is a big thing, not only make money for their family, which could support college, but maybe teach them about small business. So you help out them, you help out their families, but then you're also building a, a pipeline for disaster research, which will really be benefited, um, beneficial if you add in you know, basic GIS or something to it. So there's opportunities to really move your funding you know, into something fun. And that funding should also focus on supporting not only the community, but the practitioners. And I think that's a big problem that we have in emergency management is that there is a bridge, there's a bridge that needs to be filled between academics and practitioners. If we get a million dollars worth of research funding, but we don't have any community outreach and engagement to it or anything that ties in the local emergency management community or practitioners, or we develop a model that we don't give to the practitioners to use, then it's a waste of time, a waste of money. We're doing a disservice to the people that we're researching for. You must have been listening yesterday when I was talking to Scott Miles of the Impact 360 Alliance, because that is exactly the, if you haven't met Scott yet, um, you know, that's really what he's working on. And that's what the Alliance is working on. And I guess it's a, I think it must not be a, a it's a sort of a age old problem there between sciences and practitioners. And it seems to be one that you have to reinvent solutions with every generation. It's a continuity. It's not something that gets solved just one time. remind people that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm having a great conversation today with Antoine Richards and Nancy Contreras. Get your questions in to YouTube live. Just put them there in the chat or you can put your questions up on Twitter and just be sure to uh, tag at US of disaster. So just continuing this conversation a little bit more, we think about um, representation, particularly in emergency management. And um, I wonder, you know, which piece of that you th you've given some really nice concrete examples of things that can change. Um, there's a an aspect to it too that we look at. I think very much as a national issue. And I know Nancy, you're really focused on trans border issues. I think you both are interested in in internationalization, international issues. Do you think this kind of a revolutionary thinking is possible also? in an international context, Nancy? I mean, these problems that we see in the United States with lack of representation in emergency management, you just gave us a great example of how you see similar problems in Mexico and other countries. This doesn't seem like just a US problem. How do you, how do you think about internationalizing the solutions? Yeah, I think we can uh, look at the role of essential workers as a good start. 
um, because I haven't hmm. uh, mentioned that hmm. yet. Uh, in order to think about how we make local level policies, but they can actually ha they can actually have global impacts. So, in the study of migration, for example, we can have the local poultry farm migrant worker that I mentioned. It is a constant um, issue in Delaware. Uh, that might have tested positive because of the lack of preventative measures early on in the processing of plants. Some of these migrant families uh, could have been promised continued pay during their recovery uh, from COVID and might not have received any of that compensation. Uh, some might be undocumented and will not be seeking representation or because of fear of deportation. So these local level decisions have global impacts because, for example, one, remittances back to their countries of origin or the sending money um, that migrants usually tend to send, send money either back home for various reasons um, to family that are still in the country of origin or whatnot. Um, but the idea is that migrants helping their families back in their home is no longer a possibility during COVID because of the lack of employment or reduced employment or uh, positive testing cases and recovery and what that means in terms of the migrant family, which is destabilizing not only the migrant experience in the United States or immigrant experience, but also the economies uh, back in Central America or Mexico. And in a different context, we, we can also have uh, major COVID-19 outbreaks and we have had them in United States immigration detention centers, which I haven't talked about, mm -hmm. um, which are often right. um, housed themselves in private prison complexes. So what we have seen is an increase during COVID of fast-track deportations. And what that looks like is there has been cases where migrants have reported symptoms uh, for COVID, and they're, but they actually haven't been tested in the United States, that during a fast-track deportation that might be deported and then tested in the country uh, where they are the destination or the country that they are being returned to. Um, they test positive there. So then that case is tracked as positive in the country that is receiving. And the Department of Homeland Security is not going to be reporting an accurate number of positive cases for COVID in the United States. Um, so that is a, an area where we as researchers or as responders, we can look at this area of statistics, how we're collecting data on COVID, um, how we're responding to it, and look at immigration policy and how it intersects um, in order to um, address some of these concerns. And another issue that we have seen more recently since the 4th of July weekend, in terms of uh, you can have a great policy in the United States or in California, such as um, closing beaches for the 4th of July weekend. But an unintended consequence of closing the beaches in California was that a lot of residents drove down to Mexico, crossed the border, and mm -hmm. ended up doing their beach and partying, uh, or their partying at beaches um, in Mexico, which ended up putting the local Mexican community or the borderland community at risk for an outbreak. Um, and so what we have in terms of what I have done as a strategy now, if co during COVID because of blocked either travel restrictions from your university or um, funding being restricted because of COVID as well, um, has been to build collaborative networks or collectives with scholars in other countries. So that is something that I'm currently in the mm -hmm. process of developing a collective, um, networking and working with people in the field, essentially in Mexico, since I don't have access right now. Um, but another strategy that I think we can do 
in the meantime is look at how we theorize disasters and how we theorize, um, in my sense, uh, or in my case, immigration uh, scholarship and policy. And we can do something as simple as following the Cite Black Women campaign, which includes citing more Black uh, scholars and in particular Black women in our work. We can also include, make our work more intersectional by citing more, or bringing in the work or collaborating with more intersectional, I mean, not intersectional, international scholars. Um, and then also uh, bringing in work that is written in another language. Um, so expanding where we're getting our data from right. or our sources from um, and making the research process uncomfortable for us. The research process should not be mm. comfortable. One of the things I just have to say about this conversation is you have given me so many concrete, specific things that we can take away from this and take action right now, like literally right now. Um, and that is so important and, and helpful. I think it's back to your point, Antoine, is sort of talking about this moment of an opportunistic moment to really turn that into, into opportunity and opportunity as a structure, not just something that fritters away when the news, when the headlines shift. Um, so I'm just really impressed with the level of specificity that you've both gotten into on these, on these solutions. Antoine, let me just ask you, I want to, um, we're coming up on time, but it is the week of the hazards meeting. Before we started our call today, we were all three talking about our experiences at the hazards meeting. Um, we're doing the digital hazards meeting this year and COVID calls this week is a kind of a extension uh, of that meeting. What have you heard this week that stopped you short and made you think, okay, that's something, I'm gonna work with that. Um, there's been a lot of, um just a lot of really good discussion and not one particular the thing i like about the hazards workshop is that every session is so unique and so different um and, and a lot of them focus on not only research but what what needs to be done you know practically um uh, and that's one of the things that i've taken away from the, you know from this workshop and a lot of the sessions i've been in is that hey this is the research these are some potential solutions um the big thing that i always challenge is how are we going to you know implement this how can we evaluate this how can we make this happen and there's been a lot of that this, um, you know, throughout the workshop, um, in particular, the very last session we had about, you know, Hurricane Katrina after 15 was really impactful to me. I really enjoyed that one. I'm a big fan of Lieutenant uh, General Russell Honor anyway. So um, but that was a really impactful um, session. Nancy, same to you. Have you had a chance to participate in some of the sessions this year? Um, yes, I, I have attended every day um, since the first day of the hazards workshop, um, since Sunday, uh, doing the career training panel that day. Um, and then also, I think, uh, which this is going to be kind of funny, but it's a little disturbing um, just because of the lack of jobs. So that it was a little disturbing starting with that. But in another sense. Um, I think a highlight for me from the workshop was really seeing actually this morning the BAF panel, um, the lightning talks, um, having an all women of color panel at the hazards workshop was very yeah, nice that's great. Um, and very inspirational. And uh, looking at all the work and how they're uh, talking about their analysis and it's intersectional and it's international. Um, so I just thought it was a really beautiful experience to witness. Thanks for that. And thanks also for your honesty about the the jobs 
situation. Mm -hmm. And since you raised it, I think we can have some um, straight talk right now, maybe from both of you. Um, what should senior scholars, what should longstanding institutions, research centers, how can they support right now? I mean, this is a difficult time, obviously, because of the pandemic and um, the George Floyd murder and everything that's gone into that, this very complicated moment we find ourselves in. But the, the background of all of that has also been contraction in funding in disaster science and in emergency management. And that's been going on straight through. Um, what needs to change along those lines or how can, how can junior scholars find support? What are you looking for, Nancy, in that, in that regard? Or Antoine, either who wants to take that first? Um, I can take it. I think one of the things to start to look at is that, you know, with the way universities are going, there's still a lot of funding out there. Um, Walmart had an RFP recently, which was, a, you know, a fair amount of money and some things like that for communities of color. So there is opportunities out there. And there's a lot of and I, and I hate to coin it at this, but there is a lot of guilt money going around right now. A lot of money that says, you know, we sympathize and empathize with Black Lives Matter and and how this is impacting whatever. Here's a million dollars. Take advantage of it. Hmm. No, and I think that when it comes down to that, who better to write these grants or submit for this funding than, than academic researchers who have dedicated their entire lives to doing that? Bring that funds in and then help to sustain your scholars of color. Bring it in and help sustain the programs and then use what you have to create actionable solutions within the community. Another very concrete example. Thank you, Nancy. I guess I have the same question. Yeah. For you, we've been even when I was a graduate student, we were being told the wave of of retirements is coming. Just hang in there. And of course, it's never it's never come. The expansion of the academic hiring market has never has never come. Uh, yes, and I, I would probably um, bring this back around to one of our earlier questions about the value of the VAF. Um, so I think opening these networks and opening up, even it, even if a network is not race based um, per se, uh, like a university or a, or a, a research center, I think a way to um, be supportive right now, of not just scholars of color, but um, just PhD candidates or people that are ready to go on the market is sharing resources, sharing your network. If you know somebody that has access to a job or a potential job, share that with your students um, that are gonna be going in the job market. Uh, and like I said, it, it, it doesn't even need to be a tenure track position. It could be anything, um, a variety of, of occupations or opportunities like Antoine mentioned. Um, I think this is a time to be creative and using a word that Antoine mentioned, um, having fun with it too, even though the, the, there is a lack of funding and a lack of opportunities. Well, this has been a great conversation. And uh, I think I'm just privileged to talk to two rising stars in disaster science and emergency management. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your research. And um, I wanna remind people even listening to COVID calls, you can, uh, join us every weekday at 5 p.m. Tomorrow, we're going to have a great conversation with the co-hosts of the Disasters Deconstructed podcast. So this is going to be podcast meets podcast tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to have Jason Von Metting and Ksenia Chimutina on, and that's going to be a really great conversation. So please do join me for that. Antoine Richards and Nancy Contreras, thanks a million. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. 
Stay healthy, everyone. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.